uh, Jake was a year behind me in high school. And uh, he had moved from Michigan. And uh, his dad became the second pastor of the church that uh, I was a part of in my 11th grade year. And uh, he is the second pastor because the first pastor had to leave over some moral failings. So that pastor, who was very influential in my life, had to step down and move on, and this guy came in. And I heard about Jake coming to, uh, to SeaTac Baptist Christian School, and so I, I thought, man, leaving in the middle of your 10th grade year, uh, that has to suck, excuse my language, that, that must be really hard. So I wrote Jake a letter. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I, I told Jake, uh, man, I'm really sorry, this must be really hard. You'll have one friend when you come to SeaTac Baptist Christian School. Now, don't, don't, I had mixed motives in sending that letter, right? I want everyone to say, oh, what a good Christian boy Doug was. But I also wanted him to feel welcome. Like, I, it must have been hard to, to move in your middle of your 10th grade year. But time and truth were friends. They won out. And Jake came in to, uh, to school, and uh, we were cool for a while. Jake, Jake had a, a killer Euro step and a big smile. And, uh, but it wasn't too long until Jake became annoying to me. Jake was from Michigan. Jake had different interests than I did. Well, than we did as a group of people. Jake, uh, he talked funny. He called his mom, ma'am. I was like, what's that all about? So, you know, you do what teenagers do, and you make, you make fun of them until they get upset. Man, you guys are a tough crowd in the morning. Okay, here we go. All right. Um, anyway, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't long until Jake found himself on the, on the outskirts of, of the group. And... Uh, he was desperate for attention, which I found it partly annoying because I thought maybe he would steal the attention from me. But Jake didn't find acceptance for a few reasons. One, because kids are mean. Teen teenagers are mean, right? We all know this. Uh, and if you don't know that, then you were the mean teenager. But also because our group was looking for Jake to conform to an outward standard, an artificial standard that we had created. We, and as Christians, we were in a Christian school, we went, which connected to a Christian church, and we all came from Christian homes, but as Christians, we had no right to require him to meet an outward standard in order to find acceptance. So this doesn't just happen in high school, though, does it? It happens in communities and churches, and the Colossians were in the same danger we put Jake in. That was to make a condition of acceptance in God apart from Christ. So we're going to be in the book of Colossians um, for the next, I think it's 14 weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Colossians, and uh, we're, we're going to break it up into some, some bite-sized texts, what they call pericopes, some paragraphs of, of text. And so we're going to be looking through, and, and one of the things that Paul tells them, the goal of his ministry, of preaching and writing, 
He says in, in, ver, in chapter one, verse 28, he wanted, his goal was to present them, everyone, mature in Christ. He wanted, to, he wanted to present them mature, and that meant preaching, teaching, and writing them some things. And then in chapter one, verses nine and 10, he, he, he even prays this very thing. He asks God that they would be filled with all knowledge of his will in order, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner fully pleasing to him. What's maturity look like? Walking in a manner pleasing to him. How? Bearing fruit in every good work. The problem was there was a threat to the fruit-bearing gospel that he was preaching to them. In chapter 2, verse 8, that threat it was Christ plus something else. We all, maybe you, if you read Colossians or studied it before, you know there's something called the Colossian heresy. And, and basically, we'll get into it as we go on, but basically it was Christ plus something else. Then you can be accepted by God. Christ plus a special knowledge, a secret knowledge. Christ plus his traditions, human traditions of this world. And these human traditions and special knowledge called philosophy and empty deceit had the power and potential of captivating every Colossian Christian and every Christian. He says that it's according to human tradition and elemental sp- spirits of this world and not Christ. So there's the threat. What's the antidote? The antidote against the pandemic of religion without Christ is the grace of the gospel of truth. The antidote against the the virus that infects all of us, and that is that we tend to add things to Christ like an outward standard. The antidote to that is the grace of the gospel of truth. So what does Paul do? From prison... In Rome, he's under house arrest, at, actually at his own costs. He is, he is under house arrest, and what does he do for, for these Christians? He writes to them a letter, a whole letter. What would you do if you received a letter in the mail, a four-page letter in the mail? You might be like, what is this? I've never seen this before. Someone get kidnapped? Is this a ransom note? Like, what's happening here? Why didn't they just text me? It would have been a lot easier. Oh, my word. Okay. But in all seriousness, a handwritten letter is really cool to get. So Paul, he writes equivalent of a four-page letter about the gospel, which is the word of truth about Christ. So we are going to break it up into approximately text message length passages, right? We can all handle that, right? So Paul gets out his phone, he scrolls to his contacts, he hits the Colossians, and he starts to text them what McKinsey wrote us, or read to us. Now, Paul is writing to these people he has never met before. Have you ever texted someone you've never met before? It's weird, right? It's odd, awkward, but what do you do? Well, I found that if you introduce yourself first, they might read the whole text. It's not a guarantee that they'll respond to your text, but they they probably will read it. So that's what Paul does in verses one and two in his greeting. And Paul opens up and he just tells them who he is and why he's writing. What authority do you have to text me, Paul? What authority do you have to, to write to me? 
Well, did you notice what Mackenzie read for us in verses 1 and 2? Paul is telling them who is authoring this letter. It's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paulus, apostolos, Christolos. By the will of God. So Paul is dictating to Timothy, who's writing it down, and everything he says and Timothy writes down is what God says. It's under, it's coming out as the authority of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So these people are looking at this and they're like, okay, that's a huge claim. It's a big claim. Paul's saying, I'm writing this to you by God's will, and my authority is based on Christ Jesus alone, the Messiah. Right, Christ is the word for Messiah, the chosen one of God, God's king to, to bring back peace and shalom to this earth, Christ Jesus. And the, he is an emissary. Paul says, I am an emissary of the head of the church, Christ Jesus. And Paul, the stamp on Paul's paperwork is from the throne room of the universe. God himself is writing through Paul and Timothy, to the Colossians. So Paul doesn't write these things on his own authority, but on God's. And who's he writing to? These aren't just, these aren't just niceties that Paul is writing. Paul says he is writing to the saints at Colossae and the faithful brothers. That could, could be translated brothers and sisters. These are the saints. Now most of us, probably think, when we think of the word saint, we think you, in order to become a saint, you have had to do something special, right? You have had to, like, have an immaculate conception, and then you could be called a saint. You have to be a martyr for God without falling away, and then you could be a saint. That's not what Paul says. These are ordinary Christians still alive in Colossae, in southwestern, modern-day southwestern Turkey, who are just living their lives and, and living from hand to mouth as they work, he calls them holy ones, saints. And so are you, friends. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, so are you, saints of God. Paul considered these regular people holy ones, set apart for God because of what the gospel has done. Because the gospel has come to them and was bearing fruit in their lives, not only were they saints, they were faithful brothers and sisters. They were devoted to the good news of Jesus. They were devoted to God and his glory. Even with all their messed up thinking about, uh, 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 about Gnosticism, about, about secret knowledge, and about traditions, these people were saints and holy ones, and if you trust in Jesus, you are saints and faithful brothers and sisters too. And notice what Paul wishes for them. A hope for them is that they would have more grace and more peace from God our Father. Because he, he writes with the truth of the authority of the Godhead, this is not only what Paul wants for them, this is what God wants for them. He wants the grace and the peace that made them saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ to come at them, come to them again, and again, he wants it multiplied to them, as he's written in other places. So thank God for the fruit-bearing gospel that has come to you. 
And may it come to you over and over and over again. May it wash over you like the waves of the sea wash upon the shore. As the river perpetually runs and flows to the ocean, may his grace and peace flow to you. That's what he's saying. So having established his authority in his message and, and, and rapport with the Colossian Christians that this message is from God himself and I love you even though I've never seen you. And Paul tells us what this message, this letter is going to be all about. It's about the fruit-bearing gospel of God that has come to them in grace and truth. So this little paragraph, this little longish text message shows them and us that the gospel is so good that we should give thanks to God. We're just going to look at three points, three other points upon a greeting. Thank God for the fruit-bearing Christians, thank God for the fruit-bearing gospel, and thank God for fruit-bearing church leaders. Verses 3 through 5a show us that Paul, things, the things that Paul gives, things, the gospel is so good that Paul has to give thanks for these fruit-bearing Christians. So how does one know the gospel has changed them? It's a really hard question. It depends a little on the context and personality and, and other things that I'm not thinking of. How do I know that I'm a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know what a Christian is? It has been a question I wrestle with a lot, especially in my teenage years. As a kid who grew up in a good Christian, godly home uh, of parents who loved me, but in a legalistic church context, in, in my context growing up, those markers were all outward. You don't drink or smoke or chew, or go with girls who do. <laughs> One person got that, it's so funny, or something like that, okay? But in my own legalistic thinking, I was looking for the outward markers of looking like the group and doing the things the group did, or, or not doing the things the, the group didn't do. However, Paul tells us that the marks of a true Christian are not first outward, but inward. They're first inward before they work their way out. So put your eyes on verses three and five. Cast them down on the page and identify the three distinguishing inward marks of a Christian. He says they are faith in Christ Jesus. Love for all the saints because of the hope that has been laid up for you in heaven. So Paul draws attention to these three inward realities because they are what mark out a Christian. Notice their, their faith in Christ Jesus. Now faith, friends, is objective. That means it only has saving significance because of its object. Saving faith is from God and its effectiveness is due to its object not it, the size of its faith or even its use. Faith is an instrument by which grace comes towards us, and the object is what makes it useful. The object is what makes it saving. So while that is all true about faith, what Paul, the bigger thing, the bigger point that Paul's trying to make is that Paul has something more in mind here. 
The other aspect of faith that Paul highlights is that it is in Christ. He, he is the, someone, one commentator has put it, he is the living environment that their faith is exercised. So when you become a Christian, you are considered in Christ. They are in Christ, and their faith is alive and bears fruit because they are in Jesus. There's a living relationship. This is what baptism symbolizes. You're dead and you rise in Christ. This living faith results in works, though. The, the fruit that they bear is love for all the saints. I don't, Paul doesn't tell us how that's worked out, but there is love for the saints. It starts on the inside and works out. They exercise a deep abiding love for others because of the deep abiding love God has for them. Both faith, so faith begins inward and works its way out in love to others. Both faith and love are founded in the fertile soil of hope. The hope laid up for the saints is the reality of heaven. The reality that, so F.F. Bruce says this, the emphasis on hope reminds us that salvation, which believers already enjoy in Christ, has a future aspect to it. What's theirs here and now, the hope that is theirs here and now, its fulfillment, its fulfillment lies ahead in the resurrection age. So these marks, these of the Christian that, that Paul is assuring the Colossians that they are exhibiting, th these marks are faith, hope, and love. As you can find in other places, Paul talks to the Thessalonians about that in, in 1 Thessalonians and, and in Corinthians. So what do you look for in other Christians? What do you look for in other Christians to decipher? Is this, is this person a Christian or not? What do you look for in other Christians that you might thank God for them? Is it outward markers? Is it, is it the outward standard that, that you must meet these things in order to fit into our group? Or is it something inward? Faith, hope, and love. We had some friends over on Thursday night and they were remarking on the life and health of our church. They were, they were noticing evidences of grace at work among us. Thank God. He is at work among his people forming faith, love, and hope. Thank God that he bears fruit in his people. God's fruit-bearing gospel has come in grace and truth. Thank God. Faith, hope, and love are only possible because of the gospel, because of the fruit-bearing gospel. So what is this fruit-bearing gospel? So thank God for the fruit-bearing Christians, but it all comes from this fruit-bearing gospel that the hope of heaven laid up for us. So what is the fruit-bearing gospel of grace and truth? In verses five and six, Paul has heard about these fruit-bearing Christians from Epaphras. But the only reason he heard of them is because they heard the gospel. So this gospel in verse 5, is described as the word of truth, the grace of God in truth in verse 6. This, so this word truth pops out to us as, as something the gospel is. 
Friends, the gospel is not just something you believe and is good for your life. The gospel is not just a way you're making sense of this world. The gospel is capital T, truth. The story of the gospel that God sent his son to redeem the world through sacrifice, this is not good news merely because it resonates with us or because it's a beautiful story of sacrifice that inspires us to be good. The gospel is good and good news precisely because it's true. Christopher Beetham says this in his Bible study on Colossians and Philemon. Despite postmodern assertions to the contrary, the message to the Colossians from Paul asserts that there is absolute truth. The gospel claims to tell the true story of the whole world. It's a meta-narrative, friends. Not all, but not all truth claims are equally valid. So Paul is deeply concerned about a false worldview that threatened to cut the Colossians off from Christ. Love walks hand in hand with truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love rejoices in the truth. We love neither God nor our neighbor when we bow the knee to the God of relativism. End quote. The gospel is good and beautiful because it is true. Thank God. Love rejoices in the truth. It produces faith, hope, and love. And it produces faith, hope, and love of people because it's true. Thank God. So when kids like me come from a legalistic background, and, and, and in that background that's taught them to believe that you produce good works in order to be accepted, when those kind of people hear the gospel that says, God produced the good works in order for you to be accepted, it is like, it's just, poof, the lights turn on. And, and you, and it, at least for me, it was, I, I'm not sure if this was my conversion, but it was like a conversion for me as we went through Romans and the lights came on for me that God did this for you, you don't do this for God. God's salvation is of the Lord. You know, when that happens to a legalistic kid like me, they thank God with all their hearts that the fruit-bearing gospel has come to them in both truth and grace. So the gospel is not only a truth claim, it's a message of grace. What is grace? Grace, quite simply, the Sunday school answer. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Quote Betham again, this phrase is shortened, shorthand for the loving undeserved, unstoppable initiative of God launched in Christ to save the world enslaved to sin. This is grace. Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Thank God for the fruit-bearing Christians who bear fruit because the truth of the gospel came to them like a river of grace flowing abundant and free. The last thing we want to look at today is the means by which God brought the gospel to the Colossians, which caused Paul to give thanks, and which will cause us to give thanks for how he brought the gospel to us. So thank God for fruit-bearing church leaders. The gospel has to be learned. Did you notice that in in, uh, the end here? Paul had heard it, the, the, the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing in all the world because he, they had heard it and understood it just as they learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us our love in the Spirit. The gospel has to be learned somehow. The way it comes to us normally is through the hearing and understanding of the good news. And this is just the way it came to the Colossians. Do you remember how it came to you? How how did it come to you, friends? Through your parents? I can't remember a time when my parents didn't tell me the good news about Jesus. My earliest memories were sitting on my dad's knee and him telling me, driving into my head, the good news about Jesus. Thank God. Was it through a youth worker? A campus ministry? Was it through an evangelist? One of those turn and burn guys, you know? Turn and repent or go to hell. Who knows? Maybe it was a a compilation of all kinds of people that said it in different ways to you and all of a sudden it clicked and made sense. So who brought the gospel to you? For Colossians, it was Epaphras. He brought the good news of what God had done in the world through Jesus. Most likely, Epaphras was a, became a Christian under Paul's ministry, and during his time at Ephesus, it's, Acts tells us that uh, all of Asia heard the gospel, and this church was probably planted in that time, so Epaphras heard the good news, took the gospel back to Colossae, a city on the Lycus River in Asia Minor, devoted to textile industry, and he brings it to these blue-collar workers. And he's t- Paul is teaching us to give thanks for these kinds of people and to be these kinds of people. And notice what he says. What, what is Epaphras like? What, what should we give thanks for in church leaders? What should we give thanks for? Epaphras was a, a, a servant of the gospel. The word is doulos. Epaphras was a slave to the gospel. But he, was, he, he, he chained himself freely to this thing. This, is, this was him giving himself as a slave to the servant to the gospel, to serve it his whole life with joy. Paul says, give thanks for that faithful minister. He also teaches us to give thanks for those who are faithful ministers. They're not only fellow servants, they're slaves together with us in the gospel. They're also faithful ministers. That word is diakonos. Have you heard that word before? Servant of Christ. He's a deacon of Christ. He's a minister of Christ. So those who serve the gospel in Christ faithfully 
we should be giving thanks for. In Colossians 4, verse 12, Paul tells the church there, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Here's what he does. He always struggles on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Give thanks for people who struggle. That word is agonizomai. They are agonizing in prayer that you might become mature in Christ. And Epaphras was agonizing in his prayers for the Colossians that they would be presented fully mature to Christ. A bride without spot or wrinkle, clean to her husband, Jesus. So if you're looking for something to take up your time in prayer, friends, brothers and sisters, follow Paul's example in thanking God for fruit-bearing church leaders. Start with the one who told you about the gospel, the first time you heard the gospel. Do you remember? Are you still in contact with them? Text them. I just want you to know I'm thanking God that you told me about Jesus, that you are a faithful minister of Christ and a fellow servant. Pray for those who are agonizing both in their prayers and their labors so that others may be presented fully mature to Christ on the final day. Thank God. So what does God want to change in you this week? One thing he wants for our community and for us as individuals is for us to give thanks for the fruit-bearing gospel. A fruit-bearing gospel of grace and truth. It came to us freely and abundantly, bearing fruit and increasing. Let's take up the call this week that Paul tells us to, to just give thanks. Maybe that's all you do in your, your prayers this, this coming Monday, is you just thank God for what he's doing, for Christians, for the gospel, for, for people you've never met before, for people that have told you the gospel. Give thanks for your parents or the first person who told you the gospel. Give Give thanks. So let's pass on this grace that we have received to one another and thank God for the work of grace in each other's lives. Thank God he doesn't demand an outward standard in order to be accepted by him, like some dumb high school kids. But because Christ has met the standard for us and is at work in us bringing forth faith, hope, and love, let's give thanks to God. Father,